know about everything that everyone is doing. That's unconstitutional. This woman playing both judge and government agent is Naomi Brockwell, who used to work for me. Wait, what are you doing? I'm buying data about everything that everyone is doing. Brockwell's YouTube channel argues that tech companies and government violate the Fourth Amendment. Who are you again? I'm the Fourth Amendment. It gives us the right to be secure against unreasonable searches. You can't just collect and search all their information. Oof, that's awkward. I just did. Her point is that our government now constantly spies on us. Consumer data is being resold to companies that buy and sell data for the government. Many people say this tracking us is a good thing. It's not only good for the companies, it's good for the user because it makes for a much more seamless experience. If you've forgotten where you've been or what you've searched for to get there, Google has your back. These make my life easier. Convenience matters. Convenience absolutely matters, but privacy is important. Brockwell's videos are popular. Hundreds of thousands of people are watching them. They presumably are worried about their privacy. What's wrong with me? I don't care if they have this information. I think you should care. Let's talk about the US government. They know what color underwear you like to buy and what kinds of videos make you just scroll a little bit slower. And So what? That data is forever. That data is stored in permanent records associated with your identity, in databases in Utah. And you have no control over what regime might come to power tomorrow. You have no control over which hacker might get access to that data. You have no control over what societal norms might change in the next 10 years and that data suddenly becomes incriminating. You're basically making a bet that you and the people with the guns will always stay on good terms. And that is a bad People with the guns me. means the, the government. government. The people who have a monopoly on force, the people who have the ability to put you in jail. You're making a bet that you're gonna you're gonna stay on good terms with them. And I don't think that's a reasonable bet to make because laws change all the time. Just look at abortion laws, right? Suddenly overnight, abortion becomes illegal and women who perhaps wanted an abortion, they went from being a law-abiding citizen to suddenly they were a criminal. This is a big deal. This is just an example of one law. What if they made cryptocurrency illegal? What if they made guns illegal? And everyone who partakes in that suddenly becomes a criminal. I'm a public person. The government knows I criticize them. Get out of my life. Privacy comes down to choice, right? It's not that I want everything that I do to remain private. It's that I deserve to have the right to selectively reveal to the world what I want them to see. So don't sign in using Google. They don't need this information about you. Privacy is fundamental to a free society. Look at any whistleblower, any NGO worker or human rights activist or a dissident or a journalist who's pushing back against an authoritarian regime. Look at what happened in China, you know, in Hong Kong. The Communist Party has now revealed a plan to bring Hong Kong to heal. Hong Kong used to be a bastion of freedom. When China crushed that freedom, the government used people's phones to track and punish protesters and they're persecuting them. And now people are too afraid to do anything. Hong Kong's political freedoms have been eroded. It's easy for governments to track people because the apps on our phones record where we are and more. I've been watching you. Who gave you permission to record me? You did, boo. When you downloaded this app, you gave the app permission to access your camera. Wait, so just giving an app permission to use the camera means that they can record me whenever they want? But once you grant us technical access, baby, you're just relying on the honor system. Think about all the apps on your phone that you've given permission to access your camera. Facebook was caught activating a phone camera. But here Google's boss reminded Congress it's the customer's choice. If you're using a fitness application, which is detecting the number of steps you walk, 
you expect it to send that information, but it's a choice users make. You've probably given location permission, you've given microphone permission, camera so permission. So they work better. So you're happy with one of these obscure apps where you know nothing about the developers to be able to look through your private photos? I don't think they want to look at my private photos. And that's the but presumption if they, you're making. If they know where I am, they can recommend a car repair shop near me or a restaurant near me. I like that. I think that it's creepy personally, but it goes further than that. These companies have a whole business model of selling that data. You have no idea where it ends up. It could be ending up in the hands of the Chinese government. It could be ending up in the hands of, you know, hackers on the dark web who want to target you with phishing scams. It could be ending up in the hands of political regimes who want to target you with specific content to get you to think in a certain way, to get you to hate certain people. China is trying to interfere in US politics and try to stir up tensions. And you're probably oblivious that any of this stuff is going on. Oblivious unless we notice how specifically they market to us. Target's advanced advertising system even knew about a teenage girl's pregnancy before she could break the news to her own father. The only time I get creeped out is when I suddenly see an ad and it's like, oh my God, were they just listening to me? How did they know to send me this? They know. But they they're know. not listening to me. Did you give them permission to access your microphone? Probably. Probably. They might be listening to you. Let me have a look at your phone. I want to see what, what apps you have on your phone. Well, take a look. See, I mean, you, you have so many apps on your phone right here, John. If I were you, I would delete almost all of these apps. First of all, because... I like them. I know you like them, but you're taking your phone around with you everywhere you go. It's an intensely personal device. The government is purchasing all this data about us. They're creating records about all of us, and that's a really scary thing. In a future video, I'll show you which app she told me to delete, and I took some of her suggestions. Maybe you should too. Hope you like our video. Big tech often doesn't, unfortunately. Sometimes they censor, stop you from seeing them. But if you sign up for our email list, click there, we can get around their censorship and send the videos to you directly. And unlike big tech, we will never share your data. Are you lonely? You must be, because headline after headline says loneliness is everywhere in America. There's a mass loneliness crisis going on. Loneliness is an epidemic. We are absolutely in a loneliness crisis. As usual, the media are just wrong. Loneliness isn't getting worse. Nothing to back it up? Well, yes, there is an epidemic of headlines uh, saying that there is a loneliness epidemic, but there's no empirical data that actually shows that we feel more lonely now than we did in the past. In his new book, Johan Norberg explains that when researchers compare people with previous generations at the same stage of life, they don't find evidence of increased loneliness. Which is interesting, because I would also think that it's less of a stigma to tell people that you feel lonely nowadays. But more people live alone now. I would think that would make more people lonelier. But the interesting thing, and this is what they never tell you in the reports, is that people who live alone and spend less time with surrounded by other people are also more happy with those relationships. Not only that, but when people around the world are asked, do you have relatives or friends you can count on to 
help you? People in countries where more people live alone rarely say no. But in places like India and China, where you, I would think they'd have big families to count on, many more say they have no one. It's the complete opposite of what people expect. In traditional and less market-based societies, between 20 to 30 to 40% say they have no one to count on if they need help. Whereas in the richest and most individualist societies, it's in the low single digits. It's the opposite of what the scaremongers tell us, which is that capitalism makes us feel lonely and empty inside. One of the huge sources of loneliness is capitalism. Capitalist values of ruthless greed and competition. The material incentives of capitalists isolate us from nature, each other, and ourselves. It's a miracle we aren't even lonelier. I understand why those charlatans get an audience, because, yeah, at times we all feel lonely and life and relationships are hard. But Norberg's new book points out the many ways capitalism makes life better, including making people less lonely. Every poll we're looking at shows that people say that they're less lonely in the most market-oriented societies. The Human Freedom Index ranks how free and market-oriented societies are. Not only are people less lonely in these capitalist countries, but if you increase freedom by one point, you reduce loneliness levels by six percentage points. Under capitalism, people compete. Sounds divisive. Sounds like it would pull us apart. Feudalism, communism, fascism, that's divisive. That's all based on getting resources by taking them from somebody else. What capitalism does is that it forces us to think about what do the other guy want? To sell someone anything, you have to please them. The most important aspect of capitalism is cooperation. And that's why you constantly hear every time you buy something this double thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You say thank you, and they thank you. Thank you. It's weird, you both say thank you. You both feel you won. I'm brought up with the idea that I should say thank you when somebody has done me a service. But in the market economy, we do each other's services constantly. That's how we get richer. No deal ever happens unless both parties think that they benefit more from doing that. And here's another twist to that. You argue capitalism makes us generous? It sounds surprising, and this surprised the researchers as well. For many years, lots of researchers around the world have been looking at how generous are people when they're playing different economic games. You're not allowed to communicate what you're thinking, talk about the decision you're making until you make it. There are many real-life tests of that. This YouTube channel demonstrated a common experiment. Here the host gives people $20. You can divide this between yourself and a stranger in any way you like, but the only condition is the other person has to accept the offer. If he refuses it... Then you get nothing. Then I get nothing. Then nobody gets anything. Then it's game over. So you have to offer something to the other person. This man offers to give away eight of the $20. Eight dollars? Eight, eight, eight bucks. And the 12 is yours to keep? This man gave the woman half. Okay. So you got $10 here, is that got your Got $10, offer? yeah. Do you accept Sean's offer of $10? I do accept Sean's offer. Researchers have now done this test all over the world. And surprise again. People are most generous in capitalist societies, in places where people have more of buying and selling in their everyday lives. There are even studies in Ethiopia among 53 different groups trying to see who is most generous in a transaction in an economic game. And it shows you that the closer people live to marketplaces, the more generous they are. 
So if they constantly buy and sell and negotiate, they begin to take other people's interests into consideration. That's what markets do. They do affect our character, but not in this way that the critics say that it makes us more divisive and aggressive and uh, neglect the interests of others. It makes us more generous. In other words, capitalism doesn't just make people richer, it makes us nicer. Thanks for watching this video. If you're feeling generous, please consider supporting our channel by donating to the Giving Tuesday campaign by clicking that button. All donations now will be matched by a generous donor. I self-censored. I was not um, genuine in my own beliefs. What did this 23-year-old believe that was so unacceptable that she hit it? Well, she calls herself a right-leaning libertarian. I was afraid to have Thomas Sowell and Jordan Peterson books on my, on my bookshelf. Afraid of? Being verbally attacked um, on, on social media, being maligned as, as a whatever isterism people may attack me with. So Ricky Schlott kept her mouth shut. Eventually, she dropped out of NYU because she found it stifling. If you were doing it again, you'd speak out. Oh, well, I did speak out, <laughs> and now here I am. Here, because she co-wrote this book, Canceling of the American Mind. It details how cancel culture crushes people who think differently. This teacher lost his job for calling a transgender student she. An art history lecturer lost her job simply for showing a painting of Muhammad. The University of Virginia branded this medical student a threat and banished him from campus merely because he questioned the importance of microaggressions. Hundreds of professors have been fired, and censorship that started on campus quickly spread elsewhere. This pro soccer player was fired because his wife made racist posts. This magazine editor resigned over this very old Halloween picture of him posing with his wife. Some Bon Appetit staff called this deeply offensive brownface. Now, there's a new more serious controversy. Some students lost job offers after attacking Israel and supporting Hamas. That's supporting terror. It's a hard no. You don't get to work for me. But Schlott's book argues that America needs more free speech, even if it's hateful. Being a, a true free speech champion does require that you defend speech that even you disagree with. Schlott's co-author works for FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Our definition of cancel culture is anyone who's attacked for speech that is or would be protected under the First Amendment standard. Which means everything can be said, as long as it doesn't directly threaten people. The question at hand with cancel culture is not Am I going to mandate that you can't cancel someone? You are well within your First Amendment rights to cancel people and to malign them on social media. But the question is, do we want to live in a culture where that is our first reaction? Schlott worries about what cancel culture is meant for her generation. Young people who started tweeting when they were kids. The incoming Teen Vogue editor is out of a job over tweets she sent out as a teen. She did tweet racist things. She sounds like a racist. Yes, they were really yucky things that I would never say myself. However, she'd already deleted, she'd already apologized, and in her job interview with Teen Vogue, they actually asked her about it. So they knew about it. It's not that as though this mob unearthed something and just discovered it. Cut young people some slack, she argues. 
We need to extend grace and forgiveness because young people need to be able to screw up. But based on what I see in my news feeds, young people look more like cancelers than the canceled. Straight white boys being racist. This is transphobic harassment. You are not listening. You are disgusting. The assumption is that your generation is on board with cancel culture. It is true that younger Americans tend to be more pro-cancel culture. Millennials have the most positive view, and as you get older, it goes lower and lower and lower, but Gen Z completely switches that around. Only 8% have a positive view of it, and that's because if you're a young person who grows up in a graceless society, you're always looking behind your back, you see your peers and friends torn down on social media, then of course you're not going to want to live in a world like that. But they perpetuate a world like that. Well, I think that it's a tyranny of the minority in my generation because you can have one squeaky wheel that scares the life out of everyone else around them and we all self-censor and, and bite our tongues and sit in our hands. That's what she did in college. I sat there and I cringed and I didn't want to get involved in anything and I'm sure that I was sitting next to other kids who felt the same way. Kids who kept their mouths shut because they didn't want to be reported as biased. A lot of college campuses, they actually have administrative mechanisms to report people for their speech. And when I got to NYU, the first thing I had to do was go pick up my ID card. And I found on the back the emergency number in case you're in danger and a bias response hotline in case you're offended. So the university itself has sanctioned the idea that you can snitch on, on your peers or somebody who says something that you don't like. Now she says it's time for students to push back against the censorship. Courage is contagious. As soon as I spoke out at NYU, people came out of the woodwork to approach me and say, oh, thank you for saying that. I completely agree with you. We need to come together and actually fight back against cancel culture and say that we want to live in a free speech culture and not a cancel culture. We promote a free speech culture here at Stossel TV. You can help us do that by clicking that button. Twenty-four million adults suffer from food insecurity. Wow, Americans suffer food insecurity. Food insecurity in the richest country in the world. Many families are facing potential hunger. Really? Americans are hungry? Food insecurity is not the same thing as hunger. Rachel Sheffield researches what the government calls food insecurity. Turns out it doesn't mean hunger. It means that they had to rely on cheaper foods, store brand alternatives to name brands, or that they had to reduce the variety. The USDA admits it. For most food insecure households, the inadequacies were in the form of reduced quality, not insufficient quantity. The government's food insecurity numbers come from a survey that asks questions like, did you ever cut the size of your meal because there wasn't enough money? From that, the government claims 33 million Americans live in food insecure households. They always want to create a crisis. Yeah, government programs tend to want to keep themselves going. As a result, their handouts harm the very people they're meant to help. Before government's war on poverty began, Americans were lifting themselves out of poverty. Once welfare checks started, the poverty rate kept dropping for a few years, but then progress stopped because handouts encouraged people to be dependent. Our government did something remarkable. It created a new class of dependent people. And now government twists itself into knots to perpetuate that by calling even obese people food insecure. The New York Times used this photo in its latest report on vulnerable people's suffering, 
waiting for food stamps. Americans are consuming too many calories rather than too few. And adults labeled food insecure are more likely to be obese. The nation's obesity epidemic is growing. So activists promote another myth. Poor people are overweight because they can't afford to eat healthy. That's why they eat junk food. You know, junk food is cheap. But that's another myth. Healthy food is actually a little cheaper. Yeah, there's this widespread belief that junk foods are more affordable, but things like chips and cookies, soda pop, fast food, those are actually relatively expensive sources of calories. They sure are. We compared the cost where I live. Healthy food like oatmeal, peanut butter, bananas, and eggs cost much less per calorie than a McDonald's McDouble or Coke or chips. Don't give me that horse that eating healthy is, 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 is expensive. It isn't. Go to a supermarket. They're throwing the vegetables at you. This comedian gets it. McDonald's is the reason why I'm out of shape. I would have got a salad, but you didn't have the option. So I was like, well, I guess I got to get 52 Big Macs. This community went 10 years without a place for folks to buy good food. Michelle Obama promoted another myth, food deserts. She said eating healthy is much harder for poor people who live in what we call food deserts. Her claim got lots of play. If a mom wanted to buy some fresh fruit for their kids' lunch, <coughs> that means she would have to get on a bus. But so-called food deserts turns out to be a government trick. When officials designate them, they deviously ignore small businesses and food stands. In the neighborhood where Michelle Obama gave her food desert speech, even the New York Times reported that this man was selling food out of this truck. He sold healthy food like blueberries, onions, cucumbers, sweet potatoes. He wasn't counted in the government food desert surveys. But the media still talk about food deserts. For one in six Americans, good food is either too expensive, too far, or both. The media find deprivation everywhere. The new victims are college students. About 60% of undergraduate and graduate students are food insecure. Its studies show most students gain weight in college. It's bizarre that when obesity is the much bigger problem that activists and government hype food insecurity. But of course, that creates the rationale for expanding food assistance programs, for expanding the welfare system. Providing people with access to nutritious and affordable food. Expanding the welfare system seems to be the government's main goal. The federal government, which runs the SNAP program, announced an increase in SNAP benefits. We've spent more on the war on poverty than all the military wars combined in the United States without any success. Actually, it's been a success in one way it increases dependence on the federal government. So the handouts are good for bureaucrats who dole out the money and politicians who get to sound like good guys. They want to know how we're going to put food on their table. <laughs> but these programs promote dependency, which hurts people. What politicians should promote is what Denzel Washington promotes here. Hard work works. Remember, before welfare, Working was lifting people out of poverty. Work also has a lot of other benefits. It builds a greater sense of community. It gives people access to resources, friend networks that can help them improve in their lives. Working really hard is what successful people do. Encouraging self-sufficiency is so much better than pushing government aid. Thanks for watching. 
you enjoyed the video, be sure to hit the like button and don't forget to subscribe and click the notification bell to stay up to date on all our new videos. Let me know in the comment section below if there are any myths you think we should cover next. gain-of-function research was going on in that lab, and NIH funded it. Remember when Senator Rand Paul accused Anthony Fauci of funding China's Wuhan virus lab? I totally resent the lie that you are now propagating. The media immediately criticized Senator Paul. Rand Paul, stop it. You look like an idiot. Dr. Anthony Fauci blasting Senator Rand Paul. Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about. Anthony Fauci once again forced to call Rand Paul a sniveling moron. <laughs> but some now have changed. Major shift. NIH admits funding risky research in Wuhan. Paul might have been on to something. To me, it's not so much about them admitting or apologizing. It's really about trying to prevent this from happening again in the future. Paul also pushed the then-controversial idea that COVID began with a lab leak. All you, the evidence is pointing that it came from the lab, you, and there will be responsibility for those who funded the right. lab, including yourself. Did COVID leak from this lab, which did experiments funded by the U.S. government? The media told us, no, COVID came from an animal. The working theory is someone butchered a bat came into contact with its blood or urine, and then touched his or her nose or mouth. Everybody was saying, came from animals, from bats. I initially was there too. Then there became reports of 80,000 animals being tested, no animals with it. No animals with COVID, but. We know that three people in the Wuhan lab got sick with a virus of unknown origin in November of 2019. And that was more than a thousand kilometers away from where bats live. Exactly. Not only that, lab leaks are common. Accidents do happen. Labs in Singapore, Taiwan, and China accidentally infected themselves with SARS. SARS escaped from labs. So did smallpox, anthrax, and flu. Now the FBI and others agree with Senator Paul. The Department of Energy has concluded COVID-19 likely came from a lab leak in China. So evil Chinese scientists in a lab funded by America? America funded it, and I think it was uh, maybe not done with evil intentions, it was done with misguided notion that gain-of-function research was safe. Gain-of-function research? That can mean making viruses stronger. They sometimes create viruses that don't exist in nature that are now more infectious. They've gained the function of lethality or infectiousness by com being combined in a lab. They're trying to find ways to stop Right. Disease. But many scientists have now looked at this and said, we've been doing this gain-of-function research for quite a while. The likelihood that you create something that creates a vaccine that's going to help anybody is pretty slim to none. The media is weirdly uncurious about this. We have a disease that killed maybe 16 million people worldwide, about a million people in America, and they're not curious as to how we got it. You're trying to obscure responsibility for four million people dying around the okay. world from a pandemic. Senator Paul details his arguments in this new book, Deception, the Great COVID Cover-Up. It points out that Fauci once justified the risks of gain-of-function research. He said in 2012, even if a pandemic occurs, if a scientist becomes infected and the community becomes infected, the knowledge is worth it. Well, that's a judgment call, and I would say there's probably 16 million families around the world who might disagree with that now. Dr. Fauci didn't give your money directly to the Chinese lab. 
He gave it to a nonprofit called EcoHealth. EcoHealth Alliance is working on the ground to stand between you and the next pandemic. EcoHealth Alliance. Most Americans haven't heard of it. They were able to uh, accumulate maybe over $100 million in U.S. taxpayer dollars, and a lot of it was funneled to Wuhan. EcoHealth is run by zoologist Peter Dazak. Set our sights on the next pandemic. We can stop it emerging. We can save lives. Before the pandemic, Dazak bragged about combining coronaviruses in Wuhan in hopes of creating a vaccine. My colleagues in China did the work. You create pseudoparticles, you, look, you insert the spike proteins from those viruses, see if they bind to human cells. And each step of this, you move closer and closer to this virus could really become pathogenic in people. The spread of a new deadly disease. Once COVID broke out, Dayzak was less eager to talk about the experiments he funded. Peter Dayzak has refused to reveal his communications with the Wuhan lab. And I do think that uh, ultimately there is a great deal of culpability on his part. In addition, Dayzak and Fauci got other scientists to sign this letter, published in a prestigious medical journal, saying they strongly condemn conspiracy theories suggesting that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. They squelched all dissent and said you're a conspiracy theorist if you're saying this, but they didn't reveal that they had a monetary self-incentive to cover this up. We asked Dayzak to answer the claims in this video. He didn't respond. To give you an example of who he is and how the money changes hand, this is a guy who has $15,000 cocktail parties at the Cosmo Club in D.C., invites Anthony Fauci and others there for cocktails. They're really criticizing science because I represent science. I think he is the defender of the funding of science, the business of science. And what about the NIH, run by our government? They are still funding gain-of-function research. Yeah, absolutely. This is a risk to civilization because we could wind up with a virus that's 50% lethal, that leaks out of a lab and kills half of the planet. Paul's book reveals much more about Fauci and EcoHealth. We'll release our full interview in a few weeks. Brian Wanner runs Peter Brothers Trucking. His family business delivers goods all over America. But now, he says, Pennsylvania bureaucrats will force him out of his home state. We have no say. We can't do anything about it. No say, because Pennsylvania's rules don't come from Pennsylvania. They came from California. State regulators unanimously voting 14 to 0. This is an absolutely transformative rule. Uh, to clean our air and mitigate climate change. Emission rules will eliminate tens of thousands of trucks. If we want to follow California, we can move there. I want to follow what Pennsylvania residents want to do. I don't want to be anything like California. But too bad for him. Because years ago, Pennsylvania's Environmental Quality Board decided we'll automatically copy California rules. California just declared war on pollution from large trucks. The newest rule copied from California will raise the price of new trucks. The truck will cost a third more. It's anywhere from 50 to 80,000. It's necessary, say California regulators, because... The time for putting public health second to the economy is over. Trucks you drive contribute gravely to health problems. We have come so far in the last 40 years. In 1980, one truck produces as much as 60 trucks today. So we want people to buy new trucks. You want people to buy new trucks. But if you put these costs on us, 
that we cannot afford, we're going to just run the older trucks. The regulators don't think about that. They do not think about that. They do not see the consequences of what they're doing. Now, truckers like Brian, to save $80,000, will just buy trucks in other states. We could drive to Ohio and get cheaper trucks. The rule doesn't apply to any of those trucks. It'll just hurt Pennsylvanians who sell trucks. And there won't be any pollution reduction. The people on this board, the Fish and Boat Commission, the Game Commission, the Museum Commission, what do they know about air pollution? Well, apparently nothing. Caleb Kruckenberg of the Pacific Legal Foundation. The whole idea of having a, a regulatory board like this is, oh, these people are experts. They know what they're talking about. They're smarter than the lawmakers. But if you look at the board, that's not true. I mean, these are just sort of random bureaucrats who work in the government, and they say, mm, I don't know, let's follow California. So what? California seems to have a lot of money. I can see a state saying, yeah, let their regulators figure out how we reduce pollution, and we'll save money doing what they do. Nobody in Pennsylvania has ever voted for the standards that now control Pennsylvania. He says what Pennsylvania is doing violates the Constitution. If people want something, their legislature is supposed to pass it. We will eliminate in the state of California the sales of internal combustion engines. California's rules will soon get even more expensive because they want all new vehicles to be electric. The hope is that it's a pollution reduction. But again, electricity comes from somewhere. And usually it comes from fossil fuel emissions. Where does Pennsylvania get its electricity? <laughs> Pennsylvania makes a lot of electricity from coal. Almost five times as much from coal is from so-called clean renewables like solar or wind. Most Pennsylvania electricity comes from natural gas. So to power all electric trucks, Pennsylvania will burn more fossil fuels. In addition, we cannot supply enough electricity to power the trucks. You don't have charging stations? The charging stations, we can get the charging stations. We do not have the supply of electricity. Nor do other states. They can't even provide enough electric to provide their own cars in California. Californians are sometimes told not to charge their electric cars. Another problem, electric trucks are heavy. The heavier the trucks are, the harder it is on the road. They have a very low mileage radius, so you can't work all day. It's nothing that you can take across the United States with a load. We're not even close to getting there. No, but the regulators don't seem to care. They want to look like they care about the environment. Why would we allow our state to give away their lawmaking procedures to California? Why would we allow that with no input? That's not the American way. We actually like your input. Anything you want us to cover? Please let us know in the comments section below this video. And if you want to help us make more videos, click that button. What happens if police destroy your house while trying to catch a bad guy? They told my son that they just needed to poke some holes in the house. Those so-called holes made the home uninhabitable. The house was so badly damaged, it had to be demolished. At least insurance covers this, no? The insurance company said it was an act 
of the government that they would not pay for it. So will government pay? The city of McKinney refused to pay. This keeps happening. Breaking news in North Hollywood where police are dealing with the barricade situation of an armed suspect. Carlos Pena used to run this little print shop in Los Angeles. I was doing good. But that changed when... A man running from police suddenly barricaded himself inside of Pena's NoHo printing and graphics shop. I see a guy rushing at me. Pena didn't know the man who knocked him to the ground outside his shop. And then... I saw the SWAT team showing up. And that's where everything started. Pena watched as the police launched tear gas. Lots of it. 31 or 32 rounds of tear gas. And then I started thinking, I mean, what's going to happen? After a long standoff, the SWAT team broke in only to discover that the suspect had already escaped. Pena was finally allowed to return to his shop. The first thing I said, why didn't this guy just shoot me? Because why? all the work of my life, I mean, it's just got ruined. The SWAT team smashed doors, made a giant hole in the ceiling, and most damaging, shot in so much tear gas that they wrecked all his equipment. Of course, Pena assumed they'd reimburse him. The marshals gave you a form to fill out about the damages. I got a little happy because I thought I was going to be reimbursed. I itemized everything that was damaged. But the marshals found a reason to reject that. I didn't sum it up. I only said that it was about sixty-two to 63000 Probably they didn't have a calculator at the time. So you added that. Then a couple months later, I got another letter of denial. This time, the marshals said, we're not responsible. Pursue your claim with the police department. So you go to the city. The city then says, the claim is to be denied. And I said, why? And she said, because the SWAT team is immune. They can cause any damage to your property, and they don't have to pay for it. I said, but this is not my fault. You're making me feel it is my freaking fault, and I didn't do anything. Pena thought he'd finally get paid when someone from the mayor's office called. The new mayor of Los Angeles, her assistant called me. He said, you know what, the mayor is very interested in helping you. But half a year later, the mayor still hasn't done anything. Pena tried the city council. They just gave me numbers to call. And when you call, they referred me to somebody else. It's unbearable. It is. The city destroys your business and then ignores you? We asked city officials to comment. They would not. When police destroy innocent people's property, even to get a dangerous criminal off the street, they have to pay for the damage that they did. Lawyer Jeffrey Redfern of the Institute for Justice took Pena's case for free because he thinks what happened to Pena is unconstitutional. But police sometimes do need to wreck a house to get the bad guy. Absolutely. We're not suggesting the police did anything wrong here, but this is damage that was done for a public purpose. And if the city is paying for this, then the city can decide what kind of policies it wants to adopt. Maybe they'd shoot in less tear gas. When they get to offload these costs to random unlucky individuals, they don't have to do that kind of cost-benefit analysis. You have lost in one case. There was a case where a shoplifter barricaded himself inside a home, and the police ended up destroying the house. The homeowner calls it an abomination. Somebody needs to fess up to the fact that you have destroyed somebody's lives here. The city did not compensate the owner at all. 
the judge says this is police power, which would give officers a right to use private property without compensation. It's absolutely crazy. What the court said was because law enforcement is doing this for the public good, um, it wouldn't be fair to force them to compensate people. But that's the entire point of the takings clause. The Constitution says government can't just take or destroy private property without just compensation. If the government takes your house to build a road or a school, you get compensation because it's not fair for you to bear that burden alone. Carlos Pena now works out of his garage, and he's lost most of his business. His wife had retired, but after the raid, she went back to work cleaning houses, trying to make ends meet. It's, it sickens me that to know that this can happen to you when you're doing everything right. The Institute for Justice says it'll sue on behalf of people like Pena until police and city politicians acknowledge that they have to pay for what they break. We want to make it clear so city governments know when police destroy innocent people's property, they have to pay for the damage that they did. If you want to help Carlos Pena try to recover his life, there is a GoFundMe page that's been set up to help him. There's a link to that below this video. Are you pregnant? There's a great new law meant for you. Could become a real game changer for pregnant employees. It's called the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. America needs this, we're told, because employers abuse pregnant workers. She wound up in the ER after fainting and collapsing on the retail floor. It's a tough pill to swallow, you know? That's why government must protect women. Because, you know, that's your income. The Pregnant Workers Fairness Act sounds right and fair. Sounds like a great thing on the surface. Vanessa Brown Calder's director of family policy at the Cato Institute. She's pregnant. The Fairness Act is meant to help people like her. I'm somebody who is probably more worried than your average person. Some of the listed accommodations include more time to use the bathroom and rest, flexible hours and closer parking spots. I get to park underneath with all the executives and it's awesome. It's just decent if you're pregnant. You're pregnant, don't you want that? Well, you would think that I would be the one that would want this most of all. But Calder understands that this new law may lead to fewer women being hired in the first place. These policies, they are motivated by good intentions, but that doesn't mean that the consequences of these policies will turn out well. No. It doesn't. Remember the Americans with Disabilities Act? Both Democrats and Republicans applauded when President George Bush signed it. But the result of the act? After the ADA passed, fewer disabled people were working. That's right. The ADA actually had a negative impact on disabled workers' employment. Here it is. More disabled people were getting jobs year after year. But once the ADA passed, employment of disabled workers actually dropped. It happened because the ADA makes hiring disabled workers risky. The Pregnancy Act makes hiring women risky. Because you may be a lawsuit bomb. It does make women more risky and more costly to hire. Um, employers don't know exactly what accommodation the woman might ask for. And once she's hired, it's dangerous to fire her. She might sue. 
It's safer for an employer to say, I'm just not going to hire you. That's illegal too, but there's no way for the government to know why I didn't hire. Companies get good at working their way around these regulations. But gullible people assume laws will do just what proponents say they'll do. Pregnant workers now have more protections than ever before. This is really good news. And government officials think what counts is pleasing special interest groups. This new law has wide support from businesses, faith, health, women's, and civil rights organizations. Activists think of the short-term effects of the law, and so it's pretty easy to get behind a superficial reading of the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act and think that it could be a good idea. The momentum is always for more rules. And with legislation, oftentimes there's guidance that's issued many years after the fact. So I think this is probably just the beginning. The growing number of rules kills jobs in several ways. Since the Pregnancy Act applies to companies with 15 or more employees. This is an incentive for me, if I have a company, to stay small. If I have 14 employees, I, I'm taking a risk to hire a 15th. So actually, you kind of get penalized as you grow. Without a law like this, who would hire someone like you? Might have more medical problems, and you're going to leave, at least for weeks. Pregnant workers bring a lot to the table, and I think that many employers see that. But actually, when you create a one-size-fits-all policy like this, it starts to raise uh, many employers' concerns. The Cato Institute? should have the right to fire you because you got pregnant? I think that they should. And part of the reason for that is because I want people like me to be able to be hired in the first place. Exactly. I'm a stutterer. Today, we stutterers are protected by the ADA. I'm sure glad the law didn't exist when I applied for my first jobs. My employers wouldn't have risked hiring me. I would have never gotten a chance. Now, the Pregnancy Act will kill opportunities for women. But the politicians and the media never learn. Since the ADA killed jobs for disabled people, why would politicians think the Pregnancy Act would be any different? You'd think they'd learn, but they never do. With your help, we at Stossel TV will keep trying to educate them.